Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Bienvenidos! Welcome back, everyone. We hope you're enjoying your summer. Since we ourselves are on summer break at the moment, we wanted to share an episode with you that compiles student work created during the previous semester. In August, we'll share a special bonus episode recorded at New York Comic Con in 2022. Now, the courses represented in the content we're going to be sharing today come from our LTS courses. We have LTS 1003, Latin America, an Institutional and Cultural Survey, LTS 3100, Latino Communities in the U.S., and LTS 3012, Latinas, a Social and Cultural Survey. For these classes, we each offer students the option of completing a podcast episode for their final semester project. Other options might include a paper, uh, an instructional video, a website, or a social media-based project, depending on the course. Since students are assigned to listen to podcasts throughout the semester, they grow accustomed to what they sound like, and it helps them plan out how they want to present their own research in this medium. For some of these students, creating a podcast was something they'd never done before, and we're proud of them for stepping outside of their comfort zones and trying something new. At the end of the semester, we asked students who submitted a podcast episode for their permission to share their research on this platform. The students you'll hear in the episode are those that gave us that permission. Their work is presented as they created it with very minimal editing for sound levels and similar such issues. We have not edited them for content. In this episode, we feature projects by LTS 1003 students Leah Garcia and Kevin Lopez, LTS 3100 student Nelson Tavares, and LTS 3012 student Tatiana Perez. First up will be Leah and Kevin's episode, which considers Latino representation in television and film. They argue that the Latino stereotypes we see on TV misrepresent the community as a whole by perpetuating harmful and inaccurate generalizations, which leads to discriminatory treatment of these individuals in society. This will be followed by Nelson Tavares' interview with his wife, Sabrina, about her experiences with cultural assimilation as a Dominican-American woman. He draws parallels between these experiences and Abuela's Greatest Gift by Janelle Martinez and Harvest of Empire by Juan Gonzalez. Finally, we'll wrap up with an episode by Tatiana Perez, who explores the topic of Latina-owned small businesses in the U.S. Tatiana looks at the ways in which these businesses can help strengthen communities and build intergenerational wealth. So with just those brief introductions, we'll now let the students speak for themselves. Please enjoy their analyses and discussions. Hi, my name is Kevin. Hi, my name is Leah. And today we'll be talking about Latino representation in uh, television and uh, film. So uh, Latino stereotypes, as we see on TV, misrepresent the community as a whole by perpetuating harmful and inaccurate generalizations, which lead to discriminatory treatment of them in society. I feel like this is something I definitely noticed growing up while watching TV shows and movies Mm -hmm. that 
even though there wasn't that much representation of Latino characters within like these productions, um, even the small amount of them that were actually able to make it onto the TV and make it onto the movie, they were like, I guess they were stereotyped in ways that make other viewers see us as uh, something different or something negative. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Yeah, so one of the main stereotypes that I've seen that Hollywood has integrated within like their film industry when portraying uh, characters who are actually Latino is that they are very influenced by alcohol and they actually do like to drink a lot. And I feel like there's this fine line that they cross between uh, Latinos like enjoying their alcohol, enjoying their beer, and then also crossing the line and becoming drunk and dependent on it. And I feel like it's just something that even though it might be true to an extent, it's not what really like defines us. It's not what it's not what every single Latino male is going to be end up looking like in their life. Yeah, and I feel like Hollywood definitely pushes that. It's very like dramatized, like. Yeah, and I guess another one that we see a lot of times is um, like the language barrier or like the accent. Yeah, they they definitely push it too far. Like um, in Modern Family, uh, I don't know if you watch that show. Um, her name um she's colombian sofia vergara yeah sofia vergara yeah like especially in the earlier seasons they make her you know like they push the accent on her like very very much yeah and even though even like if she is actually fluent in english and can like speak without the accent i feel like this is something that i guess producers of modern family might actually want her to do they might want her to introduce the accent to her just so they can I guess diversify their cast or add a hint of yeah. Latinidad in their in their production. I mean, it's funny, but like some people might find it like a little offensive. You know? Yeah, I, I think it is also funny, but at the same time, like it's so played out, and you know, it's discouraging for I guess Latino viewers who actually are trying to learn English or like trying to fit into an American society mm-hmm. where. The Americans just view them as like an outsiders and they do this by making them use accents throughout yeah. their speech and their and their lines in the in the cast. Mm-hmm. The stereotype I see in, in media a lot is um, gang members, how Latinos are portrayed as, as gang members, um, and that actually um, reminds me of a show that um, forces the stereotype that Latino men are affiliated in gangs and are criminals. Um, so the show, uh, On My Block, uh, the main character, uh, Caesar, he ends up um, being a gang member uh, towards the last season, and he kind of follows in the footsteps of his older brother, uh, Spooky. And I think this fits the stereotype of Hispanic men being seen as the bad guy and, um, you know, the type of person that people shouldn't surround themselves with, um, even though obviously like not all Latinos are gang members or criminals, um, like the media's uh, portraying them out to be. Yeah. And even though I haven't seen the show on my blog, I've definitely heard of it and yeah, I haven't seen it, but I can definitely see how they would portray the Latino men to be gang members or criminals or have gang ties. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely something that's out there in the real world. So like um, in Long Island, where I'm from, we definitely have a problem with like the MS-13 gang members and a lot of violence of those immigrants who are bringing in, um, who are bringing in those, I guess, gang affiliations into the United States. 
And it's definitely something that's been going on for a while now, but I feel like I feel like Netflix's attempt to try to portray this in TV is actually just going to make things worse or make yeah. people see us as... It gives them, like, a bad rep. Exactly. Basically. It makes us seem like, uh, you know, we're less of a good citizen yeah, in a way. Yeah, definitely. Now, Leah, tell me, since your last name is Garcia, I'm going to imply that you are... Hispanic. I am. You are. I'm Honduran and Japanese. Oh, really? That's, Mixed race. That's really interesting. I never heard of Thank you. Japanese. But do you know Japanese? Uh, I'm not fluent, but I can understand like when my mom talks to me in Japanese. And, oh. um, I'm actually taking a semester of Japanese right now. And um, um, no, it's, so I'm learning. And do you know Spanish? Um, I, I'm also not fluent in Spanish, but um, when I was around like my dad's side of the family, I could definitely um, pick up on some of the stuff that they were saying. Um, okay, that's cool. So yeah. when you were growing up, do you feel like uh, people like saw you and automatically assumed that you were Hispanic? Yeah, yeah, they automatically assumed. I get uh, Filipino too sometimes, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's pretty common, like uh, confusion, I yeah. guess, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about you? Uh, you are also of Latin descent, correct? Yeah, um, mm-hmm. with the last name Lopez, obviously, but um, I am Salvadorian. Both my parents are from El Salvador. Oh, and that's awesome. Yeah, I grew up in a household where they only spoke to me in Spanish, so I was learning Spanish at home and then uh, learning English at school. So. Mm-hmm. so you speak Spanish at home and then... Yeah, even to this day when I call my mom, it'll be like in only Spanish. and But... In the real world, or like when I'll talk to my sister, it's in English. Yeah. So tell me, Leah, as a Latina, how do these depictions of Latino Americanos and film and TV actually make you feel? Like, do they make you feel like you're proud of where you come from? Or do they make you feel like you're ashamed or awkward? I'm definitely proud of where I come from. I'm very proud to be half Latina. Um, But in terms of film, I'd say it makes me a bit sad because I feel like we're never really um, portrayed in a positive light. Um, whenever I'd watch films as a child, I love watching films. Um, I saw people who looked like me and when I thought they'd be portrayed as like the hero, um, you know, it was quite the opposite. Yeah. Most of them aren't even main characters, you know, they're side characters. And, you know, I just once I'd like to see like, you know, someone who looked like me as an MC and, you know, as a hero. Yeah, I definitely noticed that too. Like, even when they do introduce a Latino Americano character, they're usually like, I guess, the bad guy or the criminal or not even the main character. I feel like Hollywood has definitely prioritized adding white female and male actors as the main roles. And, you know, even outside, like in the real world, that's just always how it's kind of been. Like, for example, like at the Met Gala, you know, you always saw pictures of like white celebrities and like, yeah, you know, I feel like there's like a lack of representation there. Mm-hmm. Even like in the Oscars too, like you see. Yeah, not a lot of Latino like award winners or even mm-hmm. like nominees. It's mainly just white dominated. Yeah. But I mean, it's slowly changing, but like it's still like yeah, and it's not much. Yeah, know? it's definitely not much. And I feel like even if they do start changing it, it's probably not even in their interest. It'll probably just be for like political correctness or to yeah, I guess to make the crowd happy. No, it just kind of makes it feel like forced, you know? Like they yeah. have to do it. Definitely. So Leah, you tell me what's one example of misrepresentation that really stands out to you or something that really stuck with you when you watched. 
Um, I'd say an SNL skit that Selena Gomez, Selena Gomez hosted um, on SNL. Uh, so basically, she was shown wearing chola attire, and it kind of felt like she was exaggerating her accent. And um, sorry, but what exactly is chola attire? Um, it's 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 uh, basically uh, them dressed in uh, heavily stereotyped uh, clothes. So uh, white tank tops, for example, plaid sleeve shirts, um, khakis, aquanet bangs, um, teased out gelled hair uh and that do you feel like my definition do you feel like it's something that you see actually in real life or like have you noticed people actually dress this way or not i actually kind of do yeah. you do my best friend actually she kind of uh dresses that way i love her but i kind of did notice that um i mean it, it is it is funny to some but to others you know it, it kind of can be deemed as a little a little offensive yeah yeah mm-hmm. i feel like that's something that you know even though they tried their best to incorporate like other cultures. I feel like it might just come off as like a parody or yeah. making, making fun of it. It's just not really something I feel like we should like mock, you know? I yeah, don't know. definitely. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I guess from my point of view, like one, one example that really stood out to me was, um, you know, when I was little growing up, mm-hmm. I used to watch the George Lopez show probably oh. cause I was, I was probably like staying up later at night than I should have, and mm. it would be playing on TV. Yeah. But uh, everybody knows George Lopez, and, you know, having last name Lopez, everybody asked me, like, oh, you really knew George Lopez? Like, no, but, you know, in one episode, there was actually um, there was actually a scene where uh, George is trying to complete a project at home, and uh, I guess he didn't want to he didn't want to do the work himself, so he hired some contractors mm-hmm. who were um, actually uh, friends from Mexico. And he's trying to barter with them and trying to come up with the price for the work. So um, some of the dialogue includes um, uh, the workers actually uh, talking to George, saying, oh, it's a big job. It's going to cost you. Like, do you want us to use nails? And then when they ask that, the workers actually turn away to each other and they huddle up and come up with the price for the job so George can pay them. Mm-hmm. And then... The workers actually come up with the price, but it's not actually in money. The workers say, oh, it'll cost you 10 cases of beer. And then George asks them, oh, you want to be paid in beer? Uh, and the workers reply, well, yeah, that's where the money is going to go anyways. I'm sorry, but this is, like, so messed up. Like, can I just say? Yeah, it's it's definitely, like, just a mockery. And I don't know. I honestly wouldn't have felt comfortable. Like, if I was in George's shoes, I wouldn't feel comfortable about, you know, being Latino and being a part of that that TV show, yeah. just being able to act that way and put down where you come from instead of trying to, you know, glorify it or trying to mm-hmm. encourage other people to see it as something positive rather than us just being drunks. Yeah. And saying that, like, all we're going to spend our money on is, is drinks and booze, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's, defini- it's definitely there. Um, it's true to an extent. But it's not, like I said, it's not what defines us. It's not, you know, my dad likes to drink, but in moderation and only on occasion celebrates. And, you know, it's like that for a lot of families who have um, a Latino dad. Yeah. I mean, they have, you know, goals and passions. Yeah. I would say, like, you know, we're hard workers. We're definitely, definitely more to life than just drinking it away. And I want that. I just, I just wish Hollywood didn't glorify that or like try to 
push that agenda onto all the non-Latino viewers. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, and another example I'd probably say was, um, are you familiar with the movie Next Friday? I'm not. Please tell me about it. Um, so basically, Next Friday is about um, the main character, who's actually played by Ice Cube. He's living with his rich uncle, who uh, won the lottery and won a big house. And mm-hmm. and um, I guess uh, one of the other characters um, is actually the neighbor's daughter. And Ice Cube develops a crush on the neighbor's daughter, and he's trying to get with her. I see. But her older brothers are cholos. So, oh. yeah, they're... There are characters, uh, there's Little Joker and Baby Joker are their names, and they walk around with tank tops, the sagging, <laughs> sagging the pants. I could just imagine that. I'm yeah. assuming they're very, like, overprotective. They're super overprotective, and yeah. they always use words like fool, and they always wear the hat that's covering their eyes, and they're trying to be thugs, mm-hmm. gangsters, and I think in one part of the movie, they even, like, refer to them as, like, narco-traffickers or, like, trafficking drugs from Mexico to wow. California. Yeah. So can I just ask, uh, when was this movie made? This movie was made in 2000. So, yeah, 23 years ago. Wow, pretty long time ago. Yeah, so it kind of sucks to see that these stereotypes even existed, like, way back then. Way back then. Even before I was born. Before I was born as well, yeah. yeah. So, Leah, tell me, are these true to any extent? Like, do you actually know somebody who, I guess, is a drunk or anybody from your Latino side who's a criminal or a gang member or a narco-trafficker? I, I don't know anyone, like, in my family, but I would say um, in terms of, like, our attitudes and how we care, carry ourselves, um, it, it, it is true to some extent. Um, you know, the media uh, kind of tends to overdo it sometimes and makes it seem like you know we're just like mean people when you know we're not yeah same here like Mm -hmm. um i definitely don't think they're true you know uh even in my family like no one's like gang affiliated yeah you know none of us are criminals and you know even we even like hate the thought of like being associated with gangs but like when netflix makes these shows or google makes these productions that kind of glorify it and like attaches that stigma to us it's kind of hard to escape that Uh, generalization yeah so uh let me ask you kevin is there any reason why hollywood you think uh hollywood writers uh portray us this way um honestly it's kind of hard to say or say or think of a like 100 percent correct answer but Mm -hmm. i feel like definitely one thing i have noticed is that not a lot of latino or latina people are actually making it to the writer's block or making it to the director's chair you know, I feel like that's something that's very uh, white dominated. So, yeah. you know, even if you can't even get a proper Latino, Latina cast on TV, what makes you think they're going to end up in the writer's block or a director's chair? You know, it's just a disconnect in the level of, I guess, education or motivation to. So you're saying, try. yeah, like there's definitely not many um, Latin directors. Yeah. From what I've noticed. Yeah. That's mostly uh, white people. So, Leah, I'm just curious, um, if you were actually the one in the director's chair, what would you do differently if you were casting a Latino-Americano cast? Um, well, if I was in the director's seat, um, I definitely would hire uh, more people of color or people of Latin descent and just hear how they want to be uh, represented. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I want them to feel comfortable expressing themselves um, rather than pushing them to do something that 
they don't want to do yeah, you know it's sure. not about like the money for me you know yeah definitely a good definitely a good reason to so kevin to wrap things up uh let me ask you what do you hope to see in the future regarding uh the representation of latino community members portrayed in tv shows and movies that we watch today um honestly probably just to drop the stereotypes you know i guess they're not even funny to me they're they're just a mockery maybe introduce like some things that, that you were proud of, like our culture, our heritage, maybe language, food, the yeah. way we dress. And not to mock, but just to glorify or to showcase to the world that, you know, we're actually here. We're actually human beings too. Yeah. Not just the laughing stock, you know? Yeah, we're just like everyone else. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So definitely hope to see that in the future. So we'll see what comes along. But yeah, I'm Kevin. I'm Leah. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Nelson Tavares, and today I will be interviewing my wife, Sabrina Tavares, about her experience as a Latina for my Latino, Latina, Latinx communities in the U.S. course. Hi, Sabrina. Thank you for joining us. Can you tell us about yourself and your background? Hi, sure. Uh, My name is Sabrina Tavares. I am a first-generation immigrant. My mother and father are from the Dominican Republic, born and raised here in New York on Long Island. Most of my life, I've lived in a very predominant Hispanic Latin community. And now more recently, I live in a predominantly white community. Thank you for sharing that with us, Sabrina. Um, I'm excited to do this interview because it will give me a chance to explore and discover your thoughts and feelings of being a Latina in the U.S., specifically here in Long Island. During the class, I realized many similarities between the experiences that you shared with me and the material that we are covering, like the essay Abuela's Gift by Janelle Martinez and the documentary Harvest of an Empire by Juan Gonzalez. I decided to interview you to get a broader perspective of those experiences and how they relate to the material that we are covering in class. More specifically, we can hopefully discuss advantages and disadvantages of your experiences with cultural assimilation. Sabrina, talk to me about your family's motherland and how that has influenced your upbringing here in the U.S. Of course. Well, as I mentioned, my mother and father are both from the Dominican Republic. They came to this country a little before I was born. And um, shortly after, um, after my brother was about two or three years old, they got divorced, which led my brothers and I to move with my mother and my grandmother and aunts um, to a very predominant Hispanic and Latin community. There, most of my time was spent with my grandmother as my mother worked three jobs to raise my brothers and I. And many of my days were spent watching TV, whether it was Hispanic television or whether it was telenovelas, Guarte Mercado, and listening to my mother, my aunts, and my grandmother dialogue in Spanish about numerous and various things. I have to say it was a very beautiful childhood, although I went through a lot of challenges growing up because we were lower class at that time. Um... And we lived in a very suppressed community. I have to say that those days, now that I reflect back on them, were probably the best days of my life. My grandmother taught me a lot 
whether it was to make certain things like flan or arroz con leche to things like conversations about how, how when I became of age and I, I got my period, for example, those conversations, typical conversations that your mother would have with you, I had with my grandmother instead because my mother was always busy working, unfortunately, to provide for my brothers and I. And then as I got older, the more difficult conversations I had with my aunts, dating advice, everything that um, I would share. It was more like a community conversation in that, in that household. Uh, every, um, thing that was said was shared amongst all of us. And I have to say that I really appreciate the advice that I was given by my mother, my aunts, and my grandmother growing up because it has shaped me and has made me who I am today. And I think that now that I reflect on that, um, I learned to appreciate it a lot more. That's very interesting. I mean, when you, as you spoke about uh, your experiences um, living amongst you, you know, your grandma, your mom, and your aunts, um, it reminded me of the essay Abuelas Give by Janelle Martinez. She closes the essay by saying, All the women in my lineage have played a role in the person that I have become, and described how all these women in her life have influenced her cultural traditions and her language. And it seems like you pretty much uh, lived kind of similar type of lifestyle. Can you relate to that based on what you just shared with me? Of course. And that quote is amazing because it actually speaks to my core. It sums up my childhood. And I think it probably sums up a lot of our Latinas childhood, because I think that Latinas, if that's one thing that we all most likely have in common is how connected and how how tight we all are with one another, how close we all are with each other, um, with our family members, whether it's aunts, grandmothers, our mothers, we, we, we have very close relationships with those relatives and they make us who we are today. I remember growing up actually being insecure of my lifestyle, of my family, of the fact that I spoke two languages and that I struggled at once, perhaps when I first started even school. I remember thinking to myself that, you know, I wanted straight hair as opposed to curly hair. I would see other friends in school, their names be very typical white names and want the same. I, I always questioned, why wasn't I a Jennifer? Why did I, why was I named Sabrina? Or, you know, why is my hair curly? I wouldn't have friends over because I was embarrassed that I shared a bedroom with my brothers. I would play with my friends at their house and they would have their own bedroom and they would have all their toys. And I always felt insecure and I always felt less and I always resented of just the environment I was raised in. And now that I'm older and I reflect back, as I shared with you, it's actually the complete opposite. It was one of the greatest moments of my time because all of those moments that I lived with my mother and my grandmother and my aunt and all of those women in my life made me who I am today. I think and I speak and I walk and I and I am who I am because of them, what ha they have taught me and how they raised me. And those insecurities now have turned into things that I'm proud of. I actually now wish I had curlier hair and now I love and enjoy my children's curly hair and I embrace it. I wish sometimes that I would have spent less time 
resenting myself and wishing I was different and actually spent more time loving myself and embracing those differences. However, now that I'm older, I know what to take and what to leave behind as far as culture is concerned. I know that all of those things that I'm proud of and that I love about my culture that I can take and embrace and perhaps carry them over to my children and the things that perhaps I'm not too proud of or fond of, I can leave behind. Yeah, I mean, when you speak about um, insecurity and fears and things like that, I mean, those are a lot of things that we feel when we're a lot younger. Uh, once we're able to kind of understand and grow into who we are and who we're meant to be, uh, we're able to kind of build strength among the, amongst those feelings. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned uh, living here in Long Island and um, I wanted to ask you about your experience with racism, bigotry, not only amongst, let's say, your Dominican culture and the people, the Dominican people that you live to around with, but amongst, let's say, Black Americans or other Latinos from other cultures? Um, I have to say, I've never been subjected to racism or direct racism. I have heard comments that have been racist. Um, and I think that sometimes I, you know, for example, my skin, I'm darker. I'm not too, very dark, but I am darker than my mother. My mother's blonde, fair skin, and so are my aunts. But and my grandmother was the darker one, and I'm darker. But my father was also dark. Um, and growing up, I would hear comments, um, not necessarily from, I would say, outsiders, like from people from like the community or even now I don't really hear racial comments because I think a lot of like that environment has changed throughout the years and a lot of people either think different or they or they just talk different now and they're a little more sensitive to certain things where before people really didn't like think about the things they said and how like the type of impact that that would have on people but I have to say I was subjected not necessarily to racism but I I was Definitely subjected to colorism growing up and hearing all, you're not, you know, Dominican because you don't speak like Dominicans or, and then, or I, in a, in a way, I always felt like I didn't belong because like I would go to the Dominican Republic and it was like, I, I wasn't Dominican enough um, because I was American and I spoke English and I, I looked a certain way. I wasn't like, uh, I, I wasn't like the typical Dominican, but then here in the U.S., I wasn't. American, American. I was Hispanic and, you know, um, I looked a certain way also that wasn't like the typical American and I spoke a different language and sometimes my English wasn't perfect. And, and I always struggled with that. I always felt like I out of place when I was younger. I always felt like I wasn't from Dominican Republic and I wasn't from the U.S. I was like somewhere in between. I was, was tr struggling to try to find myself and I was never subjected to racism, but definitely colorism, especially in Dominican Republic when, um, people would say like, Oh, you know, don't stand out too much in the sun. You don't want to get too dark or your hair. Oh, when I would straighten my hair, your hair looks so pretty straight. You should straighten it more often or just comments that aren't directly racist, but that are just very subtle about the way you look or the, or your appearance and you just feel out of place or it just adds to those insecurities that you're already going through because you're kind of somewhere in between both places. Well, you know, as you tell those stories, um, it reminded me of the documentary by Juan Gonzalez, uh, Harvest of an Empire. 
He touches on the topic of uh, diaspora, which is a really important topic in our class and a word that we use uh, very frequently. Um, basically, um, basically, um, you know, he shared stories about people that have been spread from their homeland and the challenges that they face when coming to this country. Um, how they never fit and felt like they were neither aquí or neither allá, which means not from here or from there, which is similar to what the experience it seems like you uh, were experience, experiencing, um, you know, when you as you were growing up or when you were growing up. Um, that's very insightful. And that's, that's exactly how I felt growing up. And now that I'm older, it's the complete opposite. Now I feel like I'm from everywhere. I feel like I have the best of both worlds. I have my mother's culture and everything she's taught me and my family has taught me about our Dominican culture. And then I have our American culture. And as I mentioned to you before, I take from both of those cultures what I want and then I instill those things into my children. And the things that I'm not too fond of, like those comments, like those color, like those being subjected to colorism, like those type of things or that kind of behavior. I try to avoid my children being around and I try to leave behind and better our generations to come. Well, um, thank, I just want to thank you, Sabrina, again uh, for the interview. It was very insightful to hear about your experience as a Latina growing up here in Long Island. Um, as I reflect on your stories and experience that you shared, I see that there is a lot of similarities in um, there are about that are a lot of there are a lot of similarities, but there also are a lot of differences compared to the material that we had read in class. Uh, you spoke about your fears and insecurity as a child and how you have overcome those feel, feelings as an adult, uh, which is part of us um, growing up as humans. It's important for us uh, to overcome those challenges and as we educate ourselves and also better our children in the future generations. So, um, you know, you should be very proud of yourself for being a Latina and uh, for being able to overcome all these challenges that we do go through. I am. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thanks. Hello. My name is Tatiana Perez, and if you're listening to this, this is a podcast episode from my professor, Dr. Solois, and today we will be talking about Latina-owned small businesses in the U.S. So, Latina women in the U.S. today hold a variety of roles in this country. Mothers, daughters, employees, and employers Today, I want to talk about that last one, being employers, specifically entrepreneurs and business owners. We will explore why Latina-owned businesses are important and how they strengthen communities and build intergenerational wealth. The first source I want to introduce today is in a book chapter called Six Indicators of Success for Latino Small Businesses, where it states, Latino small businesses can fulfill a variety of expressive, instrumental, and informational roles that enhance community well-being. Thus, viewing their success within a narrow capitalistic viewpoint, such as profit, sales, volume, and market shares, is too narrow a frame and would not do justice to the richness of these institutions. Further, such a narrow conceptualization would not resonate with community social workers. 
I thought this was a very important, a very eye-opening quote to include because a small business is so much more than what the numbers tell you and how much income they earn and about benefiting the local economy. Although that is really important, keeping the money local and have it circulate within a neighborhood. That is very important. However, the expressive, instrumental, and informational roles are a little harder to measure, but are invaluable and are so important to local communities. Locals depend on small business as a social resource, whether it be formal or informal mentorship. They depend on it for community gatherings or other formal or informal forms of social services. The chapter then later shows us a chart which demonstrates how in the first stage of operational or economic success of a business, such as duration, profitability, number of employees, once this is in check for business, this leads to what's called cultural capital success. And this manifests in the form such as sponsorship and engagement with local um, groups of a neighborhood, beautification or Latinization of a neighborhood, transactional connectedness, and ultimately this leads to what is described as social capital success, such as participation in coalitions, advisory committees, mentorship, volunteering, and membership in, and the creation of business associations. So the reason why I wanted to describe this chart is because it paints a very clear picture on all the benefits successful Latin and Latina-owned businesses create in local communities. I think it's important to emphasize that it's not always about the money. It's really a community builder. And it really makes so many neighborhoods in the United States unique. And it makes many people who immigrate here feel safe to know that there are people that are independent and They make their own money and they work on their own time and to see that possible and to see how Latina businesses really just strengthen neighborhoods in so many ways as previously described. And I also want to say that in contrast, big box stores like think your Target, your Starbucks, a lot of these places, yes, they want to be as individualized as they can, although it's very hard. Some of them do have initiatives. I won't knock on that, but it's a lot more regulated and they have like very specific images that they want to keep so they won't associate with certain initiatives that a neighborhood might have. And they do this to create a sense of uniformity and it really diminishes the ability to tailor services to the individual needs in neighborhoods. So small businesses, specifically Latina small businesses, are more human in every sense of the word. It really gives visibility to the people who live there and just an overall sense of community, which is so important and so like not talked about, in my opinion. I want to move on to talk about a study done by Rebecca Reichman and Marta Tienda entitled Immigrants' Pathways to Business Ownership, a Comparative Ethnic Perspective. And this study states the following, quote, Hispanic business owners prefer their children to assume ownership of the business so they, quote, will have resources so they don't have to go 
through what I went through and to keep the business in the family, end quote. For Hispanics, business ownership is not solely an instrument for overcoming discrimination in the first generation, but rather a way of creating economic resources to be transmitted to their offspring. Probably anticipating low educational levels for the children, immigrant Hispanics see business ownership as an intergenerational wealth flow, not as a transitional pathway to the U.S. labor market, end quote. This demonstrates how even though higher education isn't always in the cards for some families, it doesn't have to be in order to create financial stability. I think right now there's this idea where um, you are not seen as like properly educated or capable of certain skills or abilities only because you do not have a degree. And I think that this is a really outdated idea. Latinas specifically can face a plethora of obstacles when it comes to financial stability. And if you want to throw attempting to um, be in higher education into the mix, there are also tons of barriers there as well. Examples include lack of documentation, resources, information, language barriers, and even if you get there, just literally funding it, paying for it, fitting in, feeling like you belong, feeling like that is a community for you because higher education institutions have been mainly white in this country, PWIs. And so we see Latina women dropping out or just not being able to afford or complete their education. So some might not even attempt it. But there are other ways in order to have a fulfilling career that does not involve college. And owning a small business allows for families to overcome those obstacles in order to create financial stability in their family and pass down something sustainable to their kids that allows them to earn income. And if they choose to sell it, that's also an option. But this is something that Lots of parents come to this country for it so that they're able to build something, create something, whether it is a property, whether it is a business, so that their kids can have something for themselves. Now, I'm going to move on to the next quote, and it is a journal article by Melvin DeGallo titled Role of Latina Owned Beauty Parlors. And this succinctly summarizes seven major challenges that Hispanics face when they are establishing their business. Now, the first one is obtaining the information about establishing a business. Two, acquiring startup and operational capital. Three, obtaining the skills and knowledge to operate a business. Four, recruiting and supervising employees. Five, relating to customers and suppliers, six, surviving business competition, and seven, withstanding political attacks. As a result, an ethnic business represents a barometer of the extent to which a community can or is willing to support, support quote, its own, end quote. Thus, any neighborhood revitalization strategy must actively promote the development and support of small businesses, end quote. In my personal opinion, this quote and the last one will 
are the two most important ones on this episode. The reason I think that this quote is so important is because it so clearly states what issues are encountered when trying to start a small business. And it really emphasizes, um, that last sentence really emphasizes that any neighborhood revitalization strategy must actively promote the development and support of small businesses. So it shows that, um, yes, the local economy is important, but also really building up communities are so necessary through small businesses. And yeah, like I said, it really hones in on the priority and emphasis people must have to support small businesses when developing neighborhoods. I also want to point out something that makes New York City so unique, Queens so unique, Jackson Heights, Elmhurst, um, Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is a town 40 minutes north of Boston, in San Jose, California, in the Mission District in San Francisco, parts of Chicago, what all of these cities have and these urban places have are these small businesses that are so unique to them, specifically Latino-owned businesses, and it gives such color, it gives such life and vibrancy and a sense of safety for the people who live there. And a lot of these cities will not be what they are without these small businesses. Obviously, not just Latina-owned businesses, also Asian, Black businesses. Um, but today, we're really highlighting the Latina-owned businesses and um, emphasizing the importance of them. Because there's also so such a variety of businesses, right? It's not just food. It's also social services, clothes. Very Some are very niche, cultural and so I just think it's important to point out. Before this episode concludes, there are two really important things I wanted to highlight. The first one is for any Latina woman who wants to be her own boss and invest in herself. The following advice can be applied to those who are considering seeking outside funding or not. Patty Juarez from the Los Angeles Business Journal sells, shares insightful strategies to help Latina business owners achieve success. And they are as follows, quote, by creating or updating a business plan looking into mentorship opportunities, increasing knowledge, and getting credit ready, more Latino entrepreneurs can achieve success. Resources include the sba.gov website, as well as the Minority Business Development Agency, which connects women to resources, events, and opportunities to help them succeed through its Enterprising Women of Color initiative. Finally, the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce has more than 200 local chapters designed to support Hispanic business owners and has Latina, specific Latina entrepreneur programming, end quote. These resources are great to use, and I also think this is really important to add, and I wanted to highlight them for whoever is listening today. Another thing I wanted to acknowledge is you too, whoever is listening, Latina or not, can be an investor in more ways that you thought possible. And by investing into Latino-owned businesses, you invest into your community, you invest into the local economy, you invest into the livelihood and the strength of your neighborhood. Of course, financial, financial contributions to initial business endeavors are so valuable, but also increasing exposure goes such a long way. Whether it is following someone's new business page, reposting, liking, commenting, and interacting with their posts, encouraging others to check them out to increase traffic, it can lead that small business to their next sale and their next customer. I know some people keep their pages private or want to maintain their niche or their aesthetic or whatever, but investing in someone 
and their business outside of social media can look like attending promotional events, pop-ups, grand openings, connecting new business owners to the right people, whether it be vendors, potential customers, places they can sell at. All of this can be so helpful to someone who is starting out small, and it doesn't even have to include buying their product, even though obviously that is a great way. I'm also trying to emphasize that there are ways to invest in people that do not include financial contributions. Owning a business is extremely hard and a huge deal, and making the choice to go through with it is a milestone that should be celebrated, especially Latina women. I want to conclude this episode by acknowledging there is no right or wrong way to start your business. There are several routes you can take. And if you are a Latina woman listening to this who is considering starting your own business, I wish you all the luck and success in the world and more power to you. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to our students for being willing to share their work and for contributing to this special episode. Join us again in August when we'll share a panel that I participated in at New York Comic Con in 2022, Pop Culture, Fandom, and Comics in the College Classroom. Beginning in September, we'll be back with fresh episodes by Rojo and myself. This season, we'll be conducting a handful of interviews with different Latine creators and community activists. In the meantime, let us know what you think. Share your thoughts with us. You can always reach out to us on social media or by email. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Latinx Visions. Our email address is latinxvisions at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. And if you have a moment, please consider leaving a five-star review. Dale, until next time.